0: Let me say good morning and happy Sabbath to everyone. It is a privilege to be here with you all. And I'm trusting that God has some very, very important messages and very special blessings that he wants to give to each and every one of us. And I'm believing by the grace of God that it is through the power of testimonies that we learn how to overcome the wicked one. That's why we have that promise in the wonderful book of Revelation, chapter 12, where it tells us that they overcame. And it was by the blood of the Lamb. But I thank God it also says by the word of their testimony. And I pray that ultimately that these two ingredients, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, will cause us to love not our lives unto the death, so that we may have total and complete victory. And that's God's goal this morning. So I'm praying that as I share with you just a little bit of what the Lord has done in my life, that it will not just simply be information imparted to God's people where you just know a little bit more about me. That's all right, but the key thing is that you will be able to hear something that you'll be able to relate to and say, praise God, now I see another step of how I can overcome whatever the challenges may be in my life. And so by the grace of God at this time, I'm going to ask if you could join me to do something. I'm going to consecrate myself before the Lord, and I want to kneel. If you're able to, if you are able to, I'd like to invite you to please join with me as we approach the Lord's throne in prayer. And let's kneel together as we go before God at this time. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this beautiful Sabbath morning that you've given to us. We thank you so much for the sun that shines outside, that provides even warmth to all of us who experience this beautiful weather. But Lord, how much more do we need the sun of righteousness to warm our very cold and stony hearts so that we may truly have hearts of flesh, that we can literally go from a cold experience to a hot one. Lord, I pray while we're going through this transition, help us not to get stuck in lukewarmness because we know what it does to your body. It makes you want to vomit. And so, Father, we're praying that you'll do something special with us today. And I know that there's nothing in the words that I shall say to your people that can cause individuals to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is not going to be by might, power, or even intellect, but it's only going to be by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we come asking first for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that you will please open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. Send us, we pray, your Holy Spirit that he may speak to our hearts and cause us to go from a cold to a hot experience in thee. And may the fire that he kindles be the only fire that will last. Lord, I pray in this Very beautiful words of that song that says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That is the sentiments of my heart this morning. May you please speak to me and through me to your people. I pray that all of us will be able to rejoice in the blessings of knowing how God can truly deliver us even from the bondage of sin. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. We thank you for answering it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize that this is a uh, special Sabbath school where we're not going to be going through the quarterly. We're going to be talking a little bit about my experience. I only call it a mighty long way because even though I am 39 years young, and I definitely consider that to be young, but there's been a tremendous journey as it relates to the experiences that the Lord has allowed me to go through. And that's why I entitled this little testimony, A Mighty Long Way. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. It is in Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, that there's a very pointed text that I want to bring to our attention. And I believe that God wants to say something not just to me, but to you too. It's in Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. I will be reading from the King James Version. And the Bible says in Isaiah 43 and We're looking at verse 7, and if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Isaiah 43 and verse 7, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for what? My glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. The Bible is very clear that when God makes his people, that he makes them not to bring glory to themselves. But he says, but I have formed him for my glory. As God said that in relation to Jacob, he says that in relation to all of his people that he has created. We are all made not to bring glory to self, but to give glory to God. I did not know that. I was not privileged to grow up in a home like many of you have been privileged. I did not grow up in what is known as a seven-day Adventist home. I did not learn what a seven day Adventist was until I was a full grown adult. I've never even heard the word before. Those words, seventh day Adventist, never knew anything about it. Even worse is that I did not grow up in a home where Christ was lifted up. So that I grew up in a non-Christian home, let alone a non-seventh day Adventist Christian home. And therefore I grew up doing what everybody does. I let television be my trainer. I grew up in a home where my mother and father had very simple rules. They said, look, don't kill anybody and don't steal nothing, and chances are you'll probably make it into what we understand as heaven. And those are pretty simple rules to live by. Okay, don't kill anybody, don't steal anything, and I guess I'm doing all right. And that was basically the rules in my household. Outside of that, everything else was go for broke. Do what you want to do. Whatever seems right to you, you go ahead and do it. And so it is that that was the training that my mother and my father gave me. And I grew up in a home, brothers and sisters, where I was surrounded by a lot of activity. I was surrounded by a lot of effort because I'm the youngest of eight. And because I'm the youngest of eight, can you imagine a household filled with mother, father, and then eight children? I can guarantee you we didn't have a boring day. There was never a dull day at home. There was always activity. There was always stuff going on, going on, going on. Eventually, some of my older siblings, they ended up leaving, but there was still at least six of us that were still in the house. And therefore, we were all just kind of living life, doing what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, how we wanted to do it. If I like video games, I could say, Dad, can I have one? Dad would say, no problem. If I wanted to go ahead and watch certain cartoons or movies and things of that nature, Dad, can I watch these things? Dad would say, no problem. My mother and my father both were working-class individuals. Neither one of them stayed home, so therefore, they were not around. And typically what happens is when mom is at work, when dad is at work, and when I'm finding more time with my friends and with television and all those different things, you would be amazed at what Satan can teach you. And so it is that I found myself growing up without even sensing the love that a child needed from their mother and their father. It is not that my parents did not try to love me. It's just that they did not know how to do it as it was ordained by God because they themselves didn't have a connection. My mother happened to be the daughter of a Methodist pastor. And I found that to be interesting because I found that out way later down in my life. But it was interesting to me how it seems like young ladies always seem to stray most when their parents are preachers and teachers. And I always find that to be strange to me, that it was like, you know, some of the greatest sins, some of the greatest dirt that myself and my friends used to do used to be with pastors and elders' daughters. And I'm not sure, and I believe I have a clearer picture now, but I wasn't sure then, why is it that the daughters of ministers always seem to be the most wildest people? I didn't understand that. I really didn't. Well, here it is that my mother, she never taught us about Jesus Christ. Being the daughter of a minister, brothers and sisters, that is the worst commentary that can be stated about a young man or a young woman born in a pastor's household is that neither one of the children can actually grow up and never teach their children about Jesus. Something was very wrong in that household. And so it is. My mother, she never taught me about Christ. She was a good lady as far as what she understood to be good. But at the same time, she never taught me about Jesus. My father, forget about it, my father was a gangster. And I mean that for real. My father, was, was, was a, he was what you would call a tough guy. He was a real roughneck. He was the kind of brother. My mother's from the Virgin Islands. My father was from South Carolina. And dad, you know, grew up in the streets. He, he, he did what it was natural to do in, in anyone's mind that lived and grew up in the streets. So he brought street lifestyle and street mentality into the home. And I got firsthand vision of what it looked like. So therefore, I'm growing up in this household, no religion. No Bible study, no worship, no prayer, none of that. It amazes me today when I talk with young people in the Seventh-day Adventist church and they talk about, oh, I wish I could try those things out there in the world. You have no idea what you're saying. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I might stand before you a little clean cut in a nice, pretty decent suit right now, but I promise you, under this suit are some scars this world can put on you that don't heal very easily. They don't go away very easily. And we fool ourselves in thinking that there's something better. The grass is greener on the other side. And we want to go ahead and mess around with the stuff that's going on in the world, not understanding that Satan has some entrapments. We're going to talk about that. You see, if we could put that first slide up, you'll see that I grew up in a very simple home. It was a home that was very common. It was very normal. It was was nothing major. This was basically in Queens, New York. That's where I grew up. Queens, New York, that was my home, 10419 214th Street, Hollis, Queens, and that's where I grew up. And basically, I just lived my lifestyle and, you know, did what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do, how I wanted to do, based on my parents giving me freedom. Well, here it is that after a while, when you don't really feel loved, and when you don't really feel special, mom and dad are not there to nurture you. You're constantly around friends. So when you're around friends and mom and dad are not around, you start to look for things that you can do to try to win people's confidence, to try to get people to become your friend so that you can feel special. Every single one of us have a desire deep within us that God put there to feel special, to feel needed. And because I did not get that from home, I sought it out in the streets. I sought it through friends. Now, here's what the problem was. I wasn't a very good-looking guy, so I couldn't get the ladies to pay any attention to me. I was not uh, loaded with all sorts of skill. I wasn't a big buffed-up guy. I wasn't some great football player or any of that stuff so that I can get a whole bunch of guys to to try to be my friend and to try to hang out with me. So I had to find something that I could do to try to win people's friendship. And there was only one thing that I knew how to do. It seemed like every time music would start to play, my feet would start to move. I grew up in a very musical home. My father was part of a band. My brother Leslie was part of a band. My brother Vernon was part of a band. It was like almost every member of my household was into some type of singing or playing music. My father was a jazz musicianist and he was a drummer. My brother Leslie could play the drums, he could play the saxophone, he could play all these different instruments. Michael loved to sing. Vernon, he was excellent as a drummer as well. So I grew up around all this music and we didn't listen to Christian music, obviously, so therefore we were listening to the rhythm and the blues. We were listening to something called P-Funk. We were listening to all these different types of music that we would go ahead and dance to and so on. But the only thing was I couldn't play the drums. I couldn't play the saxophone. I couldn't play any of those things. But what I could do is I could dance. When the music would play, my feet would start to move. So here it is that at a young age, I started to realize every time I danced, the first thing I noticed was mom and dad would begin to applaud me and praise me. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, when an individual is hungering for attention and they're not getting it, when they begin to do anything that gives them attention they will begin to magnify that thing for some brothers it's walking around being a roughneck and beating up people weaker than them for some young ladies it's going around giving up their virginity and giving their body so that way they can feel special for me it was dancing every time i danced i got attention so obviously i started to magnified I started saying man let me go ahead and dance so I started dancing more and more and more and as I danced I got attention not only from mom and dad but now I got attention from my friends so as I got attention from all my different friends and everything guess what eventually I started to think well I guess this will be the medium of how I will start to feel special So here it is, as I got out of elementary, I eventually had to go to high school, and this was the high school that I went, you can put that slide up, Springfield Gardens High School. That was the high school that I went to, in Queens, New York. And I started to go to Springfield Gardens High School, and it got to a point that, again, I'm reaching out for friends. Again, I'm not a good looking guy, so I can't get the ladies. I'm not a a great uh, uh, athlete, so I'm not really getting the fellas either. But what was the one medium that I had? Dancing. So they had something called Homecoming King, and homecoming queen pageant. And as they had the homecoming king, homecoming queen pageant, I realized, well, if I'm going to get some people to learn how to show me some love inside of this school, I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and use my talent once again, which was dancing. So lo and behold, I joined the homecoming king talent show, and I started the battle, and that's actually a picture of me. That's me in action. I'm literally up in the air, dancing and making a fool out of myself, but I didn't realize it at that time. So here it is that I'm jumping up and down, and and I'm just dancing and moving along, and do you know, brothers and sisters, that all of a sudden, after doing all of that work, I actually won, and I became the homecoming king. They made me the homecoming king, and everybody in the school, it almost seemed as if they were worshiping me. I went from being a nobody to becoming a somebody. Everybody started to pay attention to me now. Now, all of a sudden, if I wanted to go ahead and had a girlfriend, it wasn't a problem. Now, if I wanted to go ahead and have a bunch of different brothers that I could hang out with and we can do different things together, it wasn't a problem. I could pick and choose who would be my friend and who I would have to reject. And I found myself going through this great crisis. And you know what was amazing? Is I didn't realize it was a crisis then, even though it was. You see, something was happening to me. Go to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. I'm going to show you exactly what was happening to me. I didn't realize it. In Isaiah the 14th chapter, I realized that everybody in this world reflects one of two images, one of two images. And I did not realize that I was reflecting the image of a fallen angel. You see, the Bible says in Isaiah 14 in verse 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which weaken the nations? It says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of the clouds, or above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. So between Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, you find that Satan was going around this rampant. He was constantly getting into this I mentality. I will ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. I will do this, I will do that. He was bringing upon himself self-worship. He was lifting himself up to a point that he did not belong. And brothers and sisters, I was doing the same thing. Do you know that when the people in the school were actually cheering me on, their body motions was actually in the form of worship. And I didn't even realize it. They were lifting up my name and they were going around chanting my name. I had a stage name. And they would go ahead and lift that up and they were going ahead and it was as it were bowing down to me and I felt like I was getting this worship as I was up on the stage while I was watching everybody down under. And lo and behold, brothers and sisters, I started to feel like I had some power. I started feeling like I could tell people what to do, when to do, how to do. I could humiliate people and it didn't matter to me. I was totally and completely self-focused, and I was reflecting the image of Satan and didn't even realize it. God said, when I made you, son, I made you for my glory, but I started to take glory to myself like many people do today. I started to think about, look at me. Look at how big, bad, bold, and talented I am. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. And I had that same eye syndrome, just like that fallen angel. It got so bad, brothers and sisters, that eventually I ended up joining a group And the group was called Quiet Storm. That group called Quiet Storm, you can see me right there. That was that group in Queens, New York. And all of us were part of this group called Quiet Storm. And that's when, you know, it was funny. I I have never professed to be a roughneck. I never professed to be a wild child or any of that kind of stuff. I was always considered myself to be a fairly nice guy. But at the same time, I did have a, a pretty bad temper. If you got me mad enough, it was on. And I knew that if you got me mad enough that I would kill you in broad daylight right next to a police officer and would care less about it. My parents knew how dangerous my mind was. And unfortunately, that was the mindset I had in that picture. If you could actually see a close lookup of even my face, you could tell that that same, that same countenance on my face, praise God, is not the countenance you see today. There's a peace that only God can give. I didn't have it in that picture. And so it is that as I joined this group, Quiet Storm, brothers and sisters, it got to a point that I started to do all these different shows and I started to do all these different programs. I ended up, what happened was I was in school, and as I started to do lots of talent shows with this team here at Quiet Storm, what eventually happened was there was a gang that was called the Decepticons. Now, anybody who ever watched this ridiculous program called Transformers knows that there are two groups in that cartoon. It's called the Autobots and the Decepticons. The Decepticons were the bad guys. In Brooklyn, New York, they had a group called the Decepticons. They were a gang. They were known for killing people with sledgehammers. That was actually their coined uh, 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 you know, recognition. They, they, that's how they became popular. Well they ended up coming to Springfield Gardens High School and they started to dance and I started to watch everybody in my school, I started to claim it as mine, I said I watched everybody in my school give these brothers attention that I felt only belonged to me. And when I watched that I went up on stage and I started to go ahead and walk around these brothers and we started to get ready to battle. We were gonna dance, I was gonna challenge them. But what happened was they thought that I was going to start a fight. So the teachers came on the stage and they broke up everything. They said, hey, wait a minute, come off the stage. We don't want any problems here. And they kicked me off of the stage. And when I got off the stage, somebody came to me and they said, listen, you know what? Why are you guys trying to start a fight? Well, all we're trying to do is have some fun. And before I could even explain to them that, no, I'm I'm not trying to start a fight, all of a sudden, one of my friends comes over and says, Dwayne, you don't have to go for that. Bang. And they punched the guy in the face. And the entire auditorium jumps on these eight guys from Brooklyn, New York, who came to dance and starts beating them up. Well, I picked up my bag and I walked out. I said, I'm not part of this. You know, I didn't try to start any fights or anything. I was just coming up there to dance. Well, I came back around the corner later on and you just saw police cars all over the place. And when you saw these police cars and everything else, it turns out that the eight men who were visiting from Brooklyn who were dancing on stage, was none other than the Decepticons. And they all said, Dwayne Lemon started the fight. Well, eventually I went home that night, and as I put my key in the door and opened it, my mother opened the door with tears in her eyes and a phone in her hand, and she says, why do I have these boys calling my house telling me they're going to kill my son? And I said, what? And my mother said, yeah. She says, people are calling the house saying that they're going to come by and they're going to shoot you, they're going to kill you. And as of that point, brothers and sisters, my mother said, you are not going back to school. And I became a high school dropout. Couldn't go back to school anymore because my life was being threatened. So now here it is that I have to try to figure out a way to work and make money so that I can survive because I can't go back to school. My mother and father did not trust me to go to any other school. They said, no, 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 it's too much trouble. And what was sad was the person who actually started the fight was caught and killed. But my mother and father still didn't feel comfortable with me going back to school. And they didn't want me to go to any of the schools in Queens, New York, because they felt those guys were going to be looking for me. So they said, look, just go find a place to work away from Queens and someplace else. So all I knew how to do was dance. So eventually, I started to go on what was called auditions. Started to go out and audition uh, for different music videos and all these different things because I figured, well, there's nothing else that I can do now. So lo and behold, I started to go and do auditions. And before you know it, brothers and sisters, I started to get hired and I got picked up and I started doing music videos. I started doing tours and I started doing television. And some of the people you'll see on the next slide here are some of the people I began working with. Queen Latifah, Heavy D, Brandy, Wu-Tang Clan, Leaders of the New School, Buster Rhyme. I started working with all these different people. Started to go ahead and do tours with them. I did television with them. I did videos with them, and all these different things. Now, brothers and sisters, you got to understand, at one time in my life, I'm sitting down watching these people. Now, people are watching me with these people. So you can imagine what's going on in my head. I'm thinking to myself, I have arrived. If ever I felt like God on earth, it was at that time. I'm making more money than my parents were making. I'm traveling, and I'm working with all these different people. And it even got deeper than that, because after going there, I started to do some other things. Next thing you know, on the next slide, you'll see I started to do commercials with doing Sprite and Coca-Cola. On the next slide, there was even a program called New York Undercover, and I started to work with the people on there and to actually appear on one of their programs. And I started doing all these different things, and I was thinking to myself, man, I must have really arrived. I must have really made it. But you know, brothers and sisters, what's sad is that a lot of times we don't understand Satan sets traps for us. I was reading a little book called Great Controversy. You ever heard of that book? In Great Controversy, page 519, it says something very interesting. It says, Satan well knows that those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. It says, therefore, he creates all sorts of devices to distract the people of God. That was the device he distracted me with. He gave me entertainment. Every time. Do you know that all the while while I was going through this journey of entertainment, do you know I had people telling me to give my heart to Jesus? They said, hey, Dwayne, why don't you give your heart to the Lord? I said, are you kidding me? I said, and give up all of this? No way and I was rejecting Jesus over and over and over again, I'm so grateful that the Bible says that God delights in mercy, delights in it. Because brothers and sisters, if God was that harsh God that some of us have made up in our minds, He is, He would have definitely had struck me down a long time ago, as many times as i rejected Him. And brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is, is that what people see on television is really not what happens on a regular basis. You see, when those lights go off, there's a whole side to entertainment that you and I do not understand, and I pray that you will never see. Do you know I've seen men get shot, and I've literally seen bullet holes enter into people's eyes, and I've seen men drop dead. I can remember times that bullets would literally pass me so quickly that I could feel the wind from the bullet pass my ear, and had I just moved my head a little bit more, instead of my ear would have been the back of my head, and I wouldn't be standing here talking to you today. I have seen women get molested and used and abused in ways, brothers and sisters, that I, I, I plead with God, take those pictures out of my mind. Money, stealing, cheating, all these different things. I remember one time I was in Kentucky... And I was working with Queen Latifah. And I remember being there with a whole bunch of hip-hop artists and all these other groups. And there was a party that they were throwing on. And in that party, there was a gentleman by the name of Tretch, who was a lead rapper of a group called Naughty by Nature. And he was having this big party. And he wanted to invite the whole neighborhood to come on in. And here it is that as he did that, the local drug dealers came in as well. And the local drug dealers were not happy that they were the celebrities because they felt we should be the celebrities so long story short a fight broke out and brothers and sisters i have never seen so much bloodshed in one environment i mean it was horrific and i thought to myself wow i didn't know about this stuff when i was sitting down watching the music video i didn't know that there was this dark side to this whole entertainment industry I thought it was just a whole lot of having fun and partying and just thinking of ourselves more than we should. But brothers and sisters, there's a whole dark side. It's a web that if you're not careful, it'll be too sticky to come out of it. And as I saw all these different things, I remember being in the vehicle after we went to the hospital and dropped off several people. And we dropped them off at the hospital, and we were getting in the van, and I thought we were going back to the hotel. And here it is that as we were getting ready to head back to the hotel... One of the guys said, Nope, turn right, go back to the club. And I'm thinking to myself, Why would we go back to the club? This is not a time for partying. We just had to admit several of our own friends because they got beat up at some party. And here it is. They said, No, 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 we're not going back to the hotel, to, to, we're not going back to the club to party. They said, Give me the bag. And they took this big white bag. And inside of that white bag was every type of gun you could think of 9 millimeter Glock pistol, Tech 9, Uzis, all of these different guns. And they just took them out. They said, go back to the club. If you see them, kill them. The instructions were clear. And they gave me a gun. And they said, if you see them, kill them. I said, I'm not shooting anybody. They said, if you don't shoot them, we shoot you. I was literally being forced to be a murderer. Now that was the last thing on my mind when I was sitting down watching those videos. I never thought that I'd be put in an environment where people would try to force me to be a murderer. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that it's only by the grace of God that police officers started to show up around that club and the car had to turn around and then we had to go back to the hotel. That was mercy. That was mercy. Well, eventually I got back to New York after doing the tour. My nephew Charlie, who was a very poor individual, growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, very poor. My nephew Charlie decided, hey, you know what, uh, Uncle Dwayne, I want to get into uh, the entertainment industry just like you. I said, no problem. And I tried to get him in, but nobody picked him up. Nobody wanted him in. Well, eventually what happened was my nephew Charlie decided, well, I want to make big money like my uncle, but he couldn't do it through dancing, so he decided to take advantage of the opportunity that was set before him. You want to know what that opportunity was? To sell drugs. He said, Charlie, just sell drugs for us one night, and you'll make X amount of thousands of dollars. And the night he sold drugs was the night he was gunned down. You know, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that we have no promise that we can keep continuing in sin and then somehow, some way, later on in life, we're going to go ahead and make all the apologies before God and say, oh, Lord, you know what? I realized I was wrong. Please forgive me. Brothers and sisters, not everybody gets that chance because I can promise you my nephew Charlie didn't. The night he sold drugs was the night he got shot down and killed. And so it is that my nephew Charlie died. And I'm watching his casket. They couldn't even have an open casket for him because he got shot twice in his forehead and his head was so deformed that they couldn't have an open casket. Even the people at the funeral home couldn't do anything with his body for this one. They said, just keep it closed. And so it is that they had to bury my 19-year-old nephew. 19 years old. That's the age of some of you students here. 19 years old. Why? Because he played with sin. Forgetting that Romans 6.23 is a true statement. The payment for sin is death, and it comes faster for some than others. Well, here it is that it was at that time that I heard the voice of Jesus speaking to my heart for the first time. And I heard a voice, it was almost like in stereo, that as I'm driving in the limousine and heading down, I heard the voice of God where he was saying, will you accept me now? Will you accept me now? And it was like the voices of everybody else was drowned out, and all I could hear was that voice, will you accept me now? And for the first time, I accepted Jesus in my life. You know, brothers and sisters, it was a shame that my nephew had to be a seed. You see, it's when a seed goes in the ground that as the seed dies, life comes out of it. My nephew was that seed. He died And it was through his death that life came into me. Will it take someone dying for us to finally get it right with God? Will it take someone being literally taken out of our lives? You know, there was one time Ellen White was contemplating, her and James White, they were contemplating about the mission that God has set for them. And as they were contemplating the mission that God set for them, Eventually, Sister White had her baby, and she did not want to leave her baby. She felt like, I can't go and do this missionary work because I need to go ahead and take care of my baby. And what happened was the baby started getting sick. And as the baby was getting sick and getting sick, they tried everything they could do to get that baby well. Do you know that baby just kept getting sick and getting worse and getting worse and getting worse? And eventually, it was through prayer between herself and her husband that they realized, you know why this baby is getting worse? because we allowed the baby to frustrate the mission that God has called us to do. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that they realized that God himself was allowing that baby to get sick and worse and worse and worse because they allowed the child to get in the way of the work that God had called them to do. And it was eventually when they realized that, that they said, All right, Lord, and they squared away with God, and they said, We will go ahead and do the mission that you've called us to do. It was at that time that all of a sudden, the baby started getting better and better and better. And eventually, the baby was just fine. And Sister White had to make a tremendous sacrifice. She left that baby for five years. Five years. And that baby was left in good hands. But brothers and sisters, God takes seriously his work and his mission. And God wants us to understand that sometimes if we keep allowing things to get in our way so that we may fulfill the great work that he called us to do, then sometimes he may allow, I want you to focus on the word that I'm using, allow, situations to take place where some of those objects, things, and people and places can be removed so that we can regain our focus and get back onto our mission. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that eventually I gave my heart to Jesus and I joined the Pentecostal church and I started to watch what the Pentecostals did and I was turned off immediately. I started to watch all that because one thing that was for sure in my mind is I always appreciated intelligence. I appreciated intelligence. And I'm not saying our Pentecostal friends are not intelligent. But what I am saying is that I had very important questions that I needed answered if I was going to live this Christian life. And the more that I kept asking them questions, they kept giving me answers like, well, all I know is I was once blind and now I can see. Now I'm like, brother, listen, you know, there's got to be a better answer than that. Amen. So every time I seemed to ask a question, they would always deviate and give me some cliche. Some term, oh, just let it go and let God. What does that mean? Oh, just give it all to Jesus. How? What's sad is I hear those same terms sometimes used in seven-day Adventism. Counselors who sit down with young people and, oh, just let go and let God. Well, what in the world does that mean? Just give it all to Jesus. How? Well, here it is that I'm stuck and I'm trying to get some answers. And eventually, I got some answers, but it was from a wrong group. I got some answers from an offshoot Islamic group. This offshoot Islamic group started to teach me all these different things. They were called Nuwabians. And they were really heavy into the hip-hop industry because I didn't leave entertainment yet. And eventually I started to study with these Nuwabians and I started to learn all these deep things, all these things. They had books called 360 Questions to Ask a Christian. And they would challenge Christians to the core. And I used to watch their forums and they would just annihilate Christians. I mean, they, they made Christians just look like fools. And I said, well, these brothers are deep. I said, that's what I want to be a part of. And it was only by the grace of God that I started to study the Bible a little bit more. And I studied the Bible to the point that one night I was on my knees on a Friday night. And I decided, I said, Lord, if you really want me to believe in you, I need you to tell me exactly who you are. I don't care if you're Jesus. I don't care if you're Allah. I don't care if you're a head of lettuce. I just want to know who you are. I just want to know who you are. This, this is the exact prayer that I said. And do you know, brothers and sisters, the following day, it was a Saturday, a friend of mine found a flyer laying on the street. Now, do you pick up flyers laying on the street? No, because there'd probably be some type of spit or some other type of solution on it that you don't want to get your hands associated with it. Well, here it is that she decided to pick it up. I believe angels were guiding her hand. She picked it up, she brought it to my house. She said, look, she says, every question that you have is right here on this flyer, every question. I said, man, let me go down and check this thing out. It was 15 minutes from my house. It was a tent meeting. I went to the tent meeting. I said, let me check this thing out. And the first message that night was called the African-American and the pig. That was the message that night, the African-American and the pig, because I lived in a predominantly black community. The man, I was a big fan of Malcolm X, and God was so good that he met me right where I was because I was a big fan of Malcolm X, and God knew how hard-headed I was. I had a real stigma against white people. I had a stigma against Christianity and all these things because I was taught this way. So therefore, when I saw the picture of the brother, he he literally looked just like Malcolm X. So in my mind, I'm saying, man, this brother just looks deep. I'm going. So therefore, I went. I went to the meeting. I said, I'm going to the meeting. And I went to the meeting, and he started to break down the Bible. His name was Stephen Williams, Pastor Williams. He started to break down that Bible, and he started to go through Leviticus 11, and he started to show all the unclean animals and all these different things. And I'm like, I have never heard Christians talk like this. I've never heard Christians refer so much back to the Bible to substantiate every point that they believe point by point. At the end of that meeting, I came up to them and I said, Listen, who are you people? He said, We are Seventh day Adventists. I said, What's that? Never heard of it. He said, It sounds to me like you want to study. I said, Oh, yeah, definitely. Go ahead, send somebody to my house. And they took my name and number down, they sent somebody to my house a little brother from Jamaica, Mervyn Morgan, a father figure. Brother Morgan came to my house, and every time I had a question, I mean, I, I, had my, I had my gun loaded. I mean, every question that I could possibly shoot at him, I'm just hitting him, and I'm just like, boom, how could Jesus be God and man at the same time? Explain that. How could this? How could that? And I'm just hitting him. Bible, I'm question, question, question. And every single time, he would keep the Bible in his hand. He would look me in the eyes, and he would say, you know, that's a very good question. You, you obviously are a thinker. And then he would say, why don't you turn to the book of John, chapter 15, and verse 7? And, and the Bible worker who was sitting next to me would take me to the verses. And then he would explain what the verse was saying. And then I would hit him with another question. He said, you know, that's a very good question. Obviously, you're a very studious person. He said, why don't you turn your Bible to Romans, chapter 13, verse 2? And he just t- kept giving me all these different book, chapter, verse, book, chapter, verse. But he did it with his Bible clothes, but he was right every time. And eventually, I stopped the study. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, stop everything. I looked him in the eyes. I said, how do you do that? He said, do what? I said, how do you do that? You know exactly where everything is in the Bible. How do you do that? And he said, those who love God spend time in his word. Such a simple answer, isn't it? He said, I said, can I learn how to do that? Because remember, I loved intelligence. I said, can I learn how to do that? He said, You can learn anything. You can learn anything. So we went through our series of studies, and after one month, I got baptized and became a member of the Seventh day Adventist Church. Now, here's where the testimony really begins I was still dancing. I was a Seventh day Adventist, and I was still dancing. I just tried to get Sabbath off. I started to make Sabbath something bigger than what it was. It's kind of like when people say, oh, you lied on the Sabbath. Okay, I'll wait until Sunday and then I'll tell a lie. Does that make sense? No, I would go ahead and say, well, let me go ahead and do my dirt and dance in the secular world and the secular industry. I'll do all of that, but just not on the Sabbath hours. And here it is, brothers and sisters, that one day I ended up getting my first opportunity to preach a sermon. And when I got my first opportunity to preach a sermon, it turned out that as I was preaching that sermon, You know how when people stand at the door and they shake your hand and they kind of, you know, wish you God's blessings at the end of the day, at the end of a service? Well, I'm doing that. I'm shaking people's hands. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And at this point in my life, I kind of scaled back from the secular entertainment world, but I was doing something called hip-hop gospel dancing. You know, I tried to anoint my work. So here it is that now I'm doing hip-hop gospel dancing. So I'm going to churches and I'm going to York College and all these different places. I'm doing my hip-hop gospel dancing. And as I was doing all of that stuff, here it is that this time I preached and I gave my first sermon. And as I was shaking hands, eventually a gentleman came and he looked probably about maybe 50 years old. And I went to shake his hand. Sir, God bless you. And he moved his hand back from me. And as he moved his hand back from me, he looked me in the eyes and he said, young man, The message that you preach today has changed my life forever. He gave me a hug and picked me up and squeezed me and he said, Thank you. And then he let me go. And that same voice of God, like stereo in the limousine, I heard that voice again. You know what it said this time? When's the last time somebody said that about your hip hop gospel dancing? was the last time somebody told you that your hip hop gospel dancing has caused me to draw closer to Jesus and has changed my life forever. Do you know brothers and sisters, when I used to do hip hop gospel dancing, do you know that I could see people even in churches that were still lifting their hands up towards me, giving me glory. Do you know that when I would dance brothers and sisters, that I could still find myself meeting young ladies that would give a piece of paper to me with their phone number and they were not requesting bible studies? Church girls, church women. In other words, Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. God was showing me the fruit of my hip-hop gospel dancing. It did not have a sanctifying effect, not on one soul. All people did was jam in the name of Jesus. They were getting their worldly joys. In Christ's name. You know, Isaiah chapter 4 talks about that. Oh, let us just be called by your name, even though we do what we want to do. And brothers and sisters, when that man said that and the Lord spoke to my heart, son, when did anybody say that about your hip-hop gospel dancing? I confess, never. Many of you today, if you really were to look at your hip-hop gospel dancing, your reggae gospel dancing, your your your, your hip-hop gospel, your reggae gospel, your rock and roll gospel, if we were to really look at the fruit we would be able to see clear as day there's no way that God is in this. Anybody can add Christ's name to anything. We're going to talk about that in our session. I'm serious. We're going to to hit this thing on the head with this hip-hop gospel and reggae gospel, rock and roll gospel, and all this other stuff. And brothers and sisters, if you love truth, that's the only reason why you'll be in my class, because that's all you're going to get. I'm not going to go ahead and tantalize. I'm not going to teach you something to make you feel good. It is is those type of sermons that's causing the level of apostasy that is currently in our churches today. You want truth? Then you come to the class. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that at that point, that's when the entertainment industry and my dancing came to an end. Now, here's what was interesting. I started to go through the motions, and and we're preparing to close. I started to go through the motions. And as I started to go through the motions, I started learning a lot in Adventism. Seventh-day Adventism got me interested in reading again. It got me interested in reading. So I started to study my Bible like never before. And I started learning all sorts of things. And I started to commit to memory a lot of things. God just, I asked God for it. Remember, I told you Elder Morgan, that person who was an inspiration to me, I started to ask him, and the Lord just started to bless. And I started to learn things, memorize things, and all these other things. And I I could quote book chapters and verses, and I could even probably repeat paragraphs from the Spirit of Prophecy, but here's what the problem was. I was still in bondage to sin. I was still in bondage to sin. I went from being an ignorant sinner to an intelligent sinner. You think that's what God's goal is? No. Desire of Ages, page 309, Inspiration says that the great mistake of the Pharisees is that they thought that an intellectual assent to truth constituted righteousness. They thought because we know so much and because we can quote so much and because we understand so much, therefore I am what I understand. And they forgot that they were supposed to manifest corresponding works. And eventually, brothers and sisters, I found out that I could go to church and I could literally be an AY leader and I would teach everybody about the need to abstain from fornication, but I would find myself after sunset committing fornication. I would find myself becoming the health and temperance leader and while I'm telling everybody else to practice temperance and all these things, I'd be the first person after sunset, midnight in a bowling alley with a whole bunch of other church members eating a whole bunch of the flesh pots of Egypt just like everybody else while I was telling everybody else to practice health reform. I would find myself telling everybody, oh yes, according to Matthew 26, we find that when Peter wanted to prove that he was not connected to Christ, he would begin to curse and swear. That's what the Bible says. But then when somebody cut me off on the road in the streets of New York, I found myself cursing and swearing. What is the point of having a gospel that has no power? What is the point of preaching a message that we're not living? And brothers and sisters, that's what I found started to take place in my life. I was in a church and I was part of a movement and trying to embrace a message that had no practical effect on my own life. And I knew that there was a need for a change. And so God started to do it. I pleaded with him, Lord, make this thing real for me. I need to understand how I can experience Christ. You know some steps that God showed me? Number one, on this slide right here, one of the first things that God started to do is he started to teach me prophecy all over again. But this time, he taught me prophecy differently. You see, there's a great purpose of prophecy. Go to the book of 2 Peter chapter one. As we prepare to close, I want you to see these few points. 2 Peter chapter one. Brothers and sisters, if you and I teach prophecy, but if we miss this point, literally understanding our prophecy is in vain. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter one, you see, there is a great purpose of prophecy. And if we don't get this purpose of prophecy, there's an end result to all Bible prophecy. And if this end result is not a reality, then our understanding of prophecy is in vain. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, We have also a more sure word of what? prophecy, it says, where unto you do well, that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until something happens. What is it that has to happen? It says, until the day dawn and the day star does what? Arises in my heart. The end result of understanding Bible prophecy is that it is to draw me closer to Jesus, that his life will rise up in my life, and now he lives out his life through my life. Do you know how many people understand prophecy but are not Christians? Do you know how many people understand prophecy? And have no connection with Jesus. And do you know history even shows us that. When you read Great Controversy, page 30, you'll read the story about that man who walked around and said, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem, a voice from the east and a voice from the west. Woe, woe, woe to Jerusalem, he said. Why did he say that? Because he understood prophecy. He understood Matthew 24, where Jesus says, when you shall see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place, it will then be time to do such and such and such. That man was speaking on that very prophecy. He understood it right. He had his timelines right. But do you know what happened to that man? It says he died in the very same siege that he foretold. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There are many people right now who are teaching about the Sunday laws and the mark of the beast, and brothers and sisters, the very same crisis that many of us are foretelling is the same crisis many of us will be martyrs in and die in it. To die in a prophecy that has been foretold is not necessarily a bad thing. Here's what made it bad. After she said that he died in the same siege she foretold, the very next sentence in Great Controversy, page 30, she says, not one Christian died in the siege now that's a problem did you catch that did he understand prophecy yes was his timelines right yes was he a Christian no why because the prophet said not one Christian died in the siege and he died In the siege, while he understood prophecy. Brothers and sisters, God's goal is not to take you from being an ignorant sinner to an intelligent sinner. He wants to take us from being ignorant sinners to intelligent saints of God. He had to show me myself in prophecy. You see, brothers and sisters, when you study prophecy, you got to be able to see what Jesus saw. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 4. In Luke, chapter 4, you got to see what Jesus saw. If you don't see what Jesus saw, brothers and sisters, when you study prophecy, you're in trouble. The Bible says in Luke, the fourth chapter, whenever you study prophecy, it is imperative that you see what Jesus saw. The Bible says in Luke, the fourth chapter, and if you're there, say amen. amen. Now watch this. In Luke chapter four, you find that Jesus shows us something wonderful. And this must be yours as well as my experience. The Bible says in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up It says, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, what did Jesus read? Verse 18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus thus far was simply reading the prophecy of Isaiah. That's all he was doing thus far. In verse 20, notice what it says next. It says in verse 20, And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, verse 21 is very key. It says, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You want to know what I love about Jesus when he studied prophecy? He always saw himself in it. When Jesus studied prophecy, he did not just simply study dates and time frames. He studied to see where am I in the prophecy? Where am I fitting in this prophetic utterance that I'm reading about? And as Christ would see himself, the prophecy became more real and dear to his heart to the point that even when he read about the prophecy, people would have their eyes fixed on him and say, man, this brother doesn't even read like other people read. When we listen to Jesus, we see that Christ saw himself in prophecy— even at 12 years old, when Jesus would see that little lamb get slain in Passover, Jesus would say to himself, You know what? That's me. At 12 years old, Jesus knew that lamb being killed represents me. You know the biggest reason why our young people are so distracted today? You want to know the biggest reason why our young people are so caught up into music and, and, and worldliness and all this other stuff? Even at Seven Day Adventist universities? Because they have no clue where they are in prophecy. They can't see themselves in prophecy. So when you read prophecy to them, and when we go over all the proof texts of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, when we go through the proof texts of Daniel 8 and verse 14, when we go through the proof texts of all these different prophetic utterances, the young people are saying, what does that have to do with me? Where do I fit in this thing? And you know what's so sad? I wish so much I had the time to show you. Do you know that according to prophecy, that it's the young people that actually can bring the breath of life back into the churches? If I had the time, I'd show you that quote. I'd show you how God is going to work through young people to bring the breath of life back into dead churches. We're talking about a time where we're living right now where we need revival and reformation? Brothers and sisters, God says, yep, and I'm primarily going to do it through my young people. Leaders, pastors, elders, You should be showing your young people where they are in prophecy. Young people, you need to be studying prophecy. And when you study it, you have to say, Lord, where do I fit in this prophecy? Where am I? Jesus understood that, and that's why prophecy was so emphatically powerful to him to the point that Jesus never even preached the gospel independent of prophecy. When you read Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus preached the gospel based on time. I started to study prophecy, but I started looking, Lord, where am I in it? So that was one of the things that started to bring about this revival in my own heart. Let's look at another one very quickly. Go ahead to the next slide. I began understanding the sanctuary message. You know, there's two ways you can understand a sanctuary you can either understand the sanctuary based on its ornamental structure, or you can understand the sanctuary to understand how is this message going to help me be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. There was a time I used to study the sanctuary, and I thought I understood it, until one day I read a quotation. I'd like to share it with you. It is in Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 81. It says, The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. It says, The mark of the beast will be urged upon us, And it says, and those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than suffer the dangers of imprisonment, persecution, exile, and death. It says, at that time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. It says, many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy will go out in darkness. Now, here's the statement that got me looking at the sanctuary message all over again. It said, all who have assumed the ornaments of the sanctuary but were not clothed in Christ's righteousness will appear in the shame of their nakedness. And I said, wait a minute. All who have assumed the ornaments of the sanctuary but were not clothed with Christ's righteousness will appear in the shame of their own nakedness. You mean to tell me that I can understand the ornamental structure of the sanctuary and still miss Christ, my righteousness? Yes. And when you listen to a lot of people teach the sanctuary, what do they teach? They teach a lot of the ornamental structures. Oh, yes, the brass represents this. The wood represents that. The table of shoebread represents this. The candlesticks represent that. The ark represents this. And we do type anti-type, and we go through all these steps, and it's good! There's a place for that, but it doesn't stop there. Sooner or later, you got to say, what in the world does the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place have anything to do with where I'm at in time right now in 2011 going on to 2012? What does the sanctuary message have to do with how God is going to help me to get victory over these sins that keep besetting me? And brothers and sisters, when you get the answer to those type of questions, that's when the sanctuary message becomes something very different than just a whole bunch of intellectual understanding. Do you know it's possible to go through many universities that name the name of Seventh-day Adventist today and never learn about the sanctuary message? Do you know that that's possible? Do you know that's an atrocity? Manuscript release, book one, page 295. We are told, brothers and sisters, that the whole purpose God raised up, Seventh-day Adventist schools, was to prepare a people to stand true to God in the judgment hour. Do you know that that's the whole purpose of why Adventist schools exist? That's the whole purpose why sanitariums exist. Do you know it's possible to go to a sanitarium and never understand how the third angel's message connects with health reform? I ask students all the time who graduate from these various schools, and they say, oh, yes, I graduated from this school and that school, and just because the school is popular does not mean that it's all right. And the first thing I asked many of those people who graduate from these sanitarians, I said, explain to me how the third angel's message is directly connected to health reform. And you know many of them can't do it? I'm saying, wait a minute, you spent six months out of school, spent your money. Some of you spent a year at these schools. You worked six months, and then you go through six months of training, and you mean to tell me at the end of it, you don't know how to connect the third angel's message to health reform? God says the whole purpose of the sanitariums. The whole purpose of our schools, the whole purpose of our food factories, the whole purpose of our hygienic restaurants is to prepare a people to stand true to God in the judgment hour. And the problem is, is that the blueprint has been broken. So God had to start teaching me the sanctuary message all over again. I started to search not just for the ornamental structure, but for the heartbeat of the sanctuary. What is God trying to show me? Where do I see myself in the outer court? I see Christ the Lamb, but I need to see me. I need to see myself in the holy place. I need to see myself in the most holy place. What is it that I'm supposed to be doing to cooperate with God? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. This is how God started to take me out of this dead experience being in the church. You cannot be content, you cannot be comfortable just simply having the name Seventh-day Adventist, but not the lifestyle. Seventh-day Adventism is a lifestyle. It is not just a name. Even Romans 9 and verse 6 says, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. And not everybody who says they are Seventh-day Adventists are Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventism is more than a name. It's a lifestyle. So I started to learn about prophecy. Where am I in it? I started to study the sanctuary message. And I started saying, Lord, how can this message really cause a change in my life? And go to that next slide, because brothers and sisters, I promise you, I also had to learn. Who is this woman, Ellen White? And what is this role of the spirit of prophecy? You know today, brothers and sisters, that we are told that many individuals are now fighting against that woman? Do you know there are people who actually call themselves Seventh-day Adventists and say they don't believe in this? First of all, they're lying. In third, Selected Messages, page 84. In fact, and I I appreciate this because let me tell you where this is going. If you ever sit down next to a Seventh-day Adventist that says they don't believe in the spirit of prophecy, brothers and sisters, you pray for that person. You know why? Because they're about to receive the mark of the beast. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. I should back that up, shouldn't I? Third Selected Messages, page 84. Third Selected Messages, page 84. What does it say? It says, know this for a certainty that those Seventh-day Adventists who will join under Satan's banner will first give up their belief in the testimony of God's Spirit. End quote. Those Seventh-day Adventists who will join under Satan's banner will first give up their belief in the testimonies of God's Spirit. When you start hearing Seventh-day Adventists say, I don't believe in the spirit of prophecy, I don't believe in the writings of Ellen White, they're on their way to receiving the mark of the beast. You pray for them. You be careful with them. If someone never understood it, that's one thing. But when someone goes before the church and says, oh yes, I believe in it, and they go through the baptismal vows, and then they get dipped in that water, and they come back out, and so on, and they may even hold positions of leadership, and they start to say things like, I don't believe in the spirit of prophecy. I don't believe in the writings of Ellen White. Brothers and sisters, they are preparing themselves to join under Satan's banner. You pray for them. You admonish them. You encourage them. I first joined this church, I said, who is this Ellen White. Why should I even believe in her? And in fact, go to the next slide. I thought she was counted amongst those who were part of this, you know, these these fake prophets, you know, all the Nostradamus and all these other guys, all those different articles we read about, false prophets, people giving all these false prophecies. I put her right inside of that same category and I said, who is Ellen White? Why should I believe in her? I don't want to hear anything from her. I joined this church to learn about the Bible. Not understanding that the Bible said that there will be a movement in the last days that will have a prophet and will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it was through that, brothers and sisters, that I realized the only way I'm going to know for sure, for sure, if Ellen White is truly led of God or not, is I had to read her writings for myself. And do you know I picked up a little book? Go ahead and put that next slide up. I picked up that little book right there, Steps to Christ. When I started to read that book, brothers and sisters, I said, there is no way that you can tell me that this book was not inspired. Steps to Christ is literally righteousness by faith compacted. And as I started to read steps to Christ and I started to understand all these different things, truly I could say, according to the next slide, I can truly say the testimony of Jesus really is the spirit of prophecy. And as I started to understand patriarchs and prophets, prophets and kings, desire of ages, acts of the apostles, great controversy, as I started to go through testimonies to the church, volumes one through nine, when I started to look at testimonies to ministers and gospel workers, when I started to read as husband and wife and parents, Adventist home and child guidance, I said, truly there's a prophet in Israel. And to think that while God is giving a gift to us, we call it a curse. And we think that we can go to all these other people's books and supposedly get all their knowledge. Why should I go to secondhand information? I can go right to the testimony of Jesus, not the testimony about Jesus, the testimony of Jesus. It is Jesus speaking through his prophet to you and I. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that I lied to you not? What was it that got me to get to a point of going from nominal Adventism to really starting to understand what this message is all about? is I once again had to go back to prophecy. I had to go back to the sanctuary. I had to go back to the spirit of prophecy. And as I started to read these things, study these things, and understand these things, this is how God started to do a revival in my soul. And he started to teach me something. Because you want to know what's the end result of what Jesus is trying to do right now? Jesus wants to get us to a point that we will love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. I close with this thought. There is a story of a young boy named Johnny. And the story goes like this. The mother of Johnny, she was trying to prepare for Sabbath. And as she was preparing for Sabbath, she was mopping the floor, mopping the floor, mopping the floor. And as she's mopping the floor, she's almost done for the Sabbath. And as soon as she's almost done, all of a sudden she hears this footstep. And it's little Johnny. And little Johnny bursts through the door. And as Johnny bursts through the door, he runs through that floor that Mother was just mopping, and he has mud all over his shoes. So he dirties the floor up. Well, if Mother wants a clean floor, what's she gonna have to do? She's gonna have to start cleaning up again. So Mother starts cleaning up again. And as Mother's cleaning up again, cleaning up again, cleaning up again, eventually it gets to a point that once again, she hears those footsteps. Little Johnny bursts through the door and he tracks mud all through the floor and mother was almost done. So therefore, if mother wants a clean floor, what's she going to have to do? Now, some say mop again, but the right answer is she needs to get Johnny to stop tracking mud in the house. That's how she can secure that no more mud gets tracked in the house. You know, it's been since 1844 that Jesus left the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and moved into that most holy place. When Jesus moved into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, he did not want to start a work. He wanted to finish the work. And Jesus' work in the most holy place is the blotting out of sin, the cleansing of the sanctuary. But do you know what's so sad? If anybody ever asks you, like they asked me, Brother Lemon, why is it that Jesus has not come? You know what my answer is? Because Jesus has a bunch of little Johnnies on earth. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's the reason. Christ cannot finish the work until he can develop a people that stop sending the mud of sin into the heavenly sanctuary that causes him to have to keep doing a cleansing work. When Jesus can develop a people that are settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be moved, that they love God so much that they would prefer to die than sin against him. When Jesus can finally develop a group like that, brothers and sisters, I promise you, he will finish the work. He will finally be able to say, now let him who is filthy be filthy still, and let him who is holy be. Be holy still. He will be able to look to the Father and say, Father, I now have a people on earth who are settled and who love the things I love and hate the things I hate. And once Jesus has that group, the work will finally be finished. And I close in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1. What is it that God loves? What is it that God hates? Because the great work that Christ wants to do right now through all these messages that we've been listening to is to bring us to this experience where we love the things he loves and hates the things he hates. You want to see what God loves? You want to see what he hates? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. When we learn to love righteousness, we will hate iniquity. And brothers and sisters, this is something that requires heart surgery. And I'm grateful that Jesus, the master surgeon, is the one who shall perform it. There is no man that can do this. Only Jesus can. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, though I cannot say that I have arrived to this point here, but I know I'm on the onward-upward path by God's grace, and you need to be too. I'll tell you one thing that I have learned to love and hate. There was a time I hated hymns, and I loved hip-hop. There was a time that I hated spiritual songs, but I loved rhythm and blues. There was a time that I hated psalms and scripture songs, But I loved all of the secular music and the secular dancing. But do you know what God did? He did some heart surgery. And now because of this heart surgery, God has actually showed me how to love hymns, how to love scripture songs, how to love true spiritual songs, and how to hate hip hop, how to hate R&B, how to hate all the secular music and all this dancing. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. What God has done for one, he can do for all, if you're simply willing. And so if you find that you're in the stronghold, if you find that, quite honestly, I'm in the stronghold of the entertainment industry, I love my secular music, I love my my rock and roll, my hip-hop, my jazz, or whatever the case may be. Granted, I can't find anywhere in the Bible to approve of it, but I love it anyhow. But you know what? If Jesus made you free, I want to be free too. If that's your desire, if you're saying, you know what? I love this stuff. I'm into it. Yes, I am. But you know what? By the grace of God, I want to be made free. I want to learn how to love the things Jesus loves and hate the things he hates. And if he hates these types of music and all these worldly forms and things, then you know what? I want to turn away from it, too, because I love Jesus and I want to serve him. If that's your desire, you're saying, Lord, you're being honest. Lord, I love secular music. I love my secular dancing. I don't know how to let it go, but I want to let it go because I want to honor you. You sacrificed everything for me. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. If that's your desire, I want you to stand to your feet. You're being honest with yourself. You're saying, I know I love that secular industry. I love the secular music. I love all these different things, but I'm willing to let it go. You see, this is what it's all about, brothers and sisters. As you stand, you know that Christ is standing with you, He'll give you the strength. I'm standing before you as a living testimony, as one who is deeply entrenched in this stuff, and it's amazing. You ask me how I know he lives? Because he lives in my heart. I'm amazed at how God can change a person. I am serious, brothers and sisters, I am still amazed. I have a friend of mine that every email she ever sends me, my dear friend, Sister Duncan, every email she sends, she always concludes her email by saying, still amazed still amazed. I'm amazed at how God can teach us to hate the things he hates and love the things he loves. And so as you stand, know that you're not alone. Know that Christ will be with you. He's going to show you how to develop this love deeper. And naturally, as you love righteousness, you will hate anything opposite to it. Even iniquity. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for so many of your people who have stood up. We recognize, dear God, that this is not going to be by might or by power, but by your spirit. They have confessed that the bondage of secular music and all these things are still enwrapping them. But they realize today, Lord, that they want to be made free. They want to let it go. And Father, I'm grateful that your word inspires us that everything depends on the right action of the will. They may not feel it at first, but help them to choose to turn off the things that take their mind from heaven and to turn on the things that leads the mind to heaven. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will put a hedge round about them and that your angels will keep them and hover over them and that your spirit may perform the heart surgery that only you can do and show us how to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. Though these things might seem impossible with man, We're grateful that all things are possible with God. Truly, let not our will, but thy will be done. This is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse